Thank you, Wags. Thank you, Rodney. It's only an hour. It's Jeff. It's Jordan. Jordan, how was your trip to Atlanta, man? Man, long. Um, but it was it was worth it. Um, it was really cool being there, and you know that's. I think there's like 14 or 16 uh, Under Armour camps each spring, and you know that one is usually the most loaded out of all. Of yeah. Them. Um, it has every top recruit from the state of Mississippi, every top recruit from the state of Alabama, and every top recruit from the state of Georgia. Um, and then since there's a Miami Under Armour that'll be next weekend, and the weekend before this weekend was the Orlando Under Armour. Not a ton of Florida kids there. It was mostly just like kids who live right on the border that were there if they were from Florida. Um, and then there was a couple of kids from the Carolinas sprinkled in there as well. Um, but, you know, mostly Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. And, like, my main takeaway from there is, like, there are just different kinds of athletes in that region of the country. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I made the drive up there with, with Colin Kennedy from – uh, Sooners Illustrated and, and Hudson Standish, who used to work at Orange twenty four seven. He's now on our Good scouting dude. team. It, both both great dudes. Um, and you know we we just kept repeating like there are kids here that don't exist in Texas, like yeah. bodies and frames that you can only get from this part of the country, and they're in front of us right now. Mm -hmm. Like yeah, and it's like it, it, we're obviously pointing at we're pointing at the obvious here, but like. The best uh, football region in the country, I think, is the Southeast. I think the best state is Texas, and it produces, you know, the most. But just the the athletes that are winning programs, national championships in college football, you have to recruit the Southeast because you need those guys to win. And Texas had about, I think, 23 or 24 offers that were there. I only interviewed about three or four kids. Um, I mean, we all know what's what's up, you know. <laughs> Texas probably isn't going to be able to pull a ton yeah. of those kids. Um, and, you know, that's something that's it's going to have to change. Um, not that they're going to need to sign like six from Georgia or that region every year. But they're going to need to consistently keep signing at least two or three of those guys because that you, yeah. you genuinely need that if you want to win a national championship. Mm -hmm. And having to shard George to those Georgia ties helps a lot. Um, you know, <laughs> not, a, not a ton of talk of Texas. Uh, amongst the kids there, but you know the ones that were talking Texas. Anytime you bring up Deshard Choice, their eyes were lighting up. And uh, also Texas, their new D line coach Kenny Baker. He hails from Cartersville. It's a suburb outside of Atlanta. Uh, he came in only about five days before like the close of the dead period, so uh, he didn't go all the way out to Atlanta when you know the priority in state guys need to be seen, like Landon Rink, and that's what he did. The dead period closed, but now that uh. Now that dead period is, is going to open towards the end of the month, um, you know, I'd expect them to have them out there in Georgia at least once or twice in the spring. And, sure. you know, again, that it's the most fertile recruiting gown there might be in the country right now. And just it, it was genuinely just eye opening seeing some of the bodies and frames there, because, again, some of those you just can't you can't find them anywhere else. But in that yeah. region, it's uh, it, it's mainly what I've noticed from that region. I mean. Skill guys, you can typically find skill guys in Texas. You can find skill guys in the Southeast. It's those box defenders. It's your edge guys. It's your off-ball linebackers. Uh, even your defensive tackles, like your interior D linemen. Like, the state of Louisiana is one where, like, the amount of 300-pound fast-twitch dudes that come out of the state of Louisiana and or the state of Mississippi, like, it, it's insane. It's insane how many big dudes that are really good athletes come out of that part of the country that that's what's always 
fascinated me about the Southeast because you look at an SEC roster and it's like, dude, where do you guys find these people? Like, just I, I don't know where like this random random three hundred pound dudes that like can dunk basketballs or you're six two three hundred and you can jump out of the gym. Like, where where do these guys come from? Well, most of them are coming from the Southeast. So that's where you got to go to get, you know, athletic defensive linemen, guys that can bend the corner and get after the quarterback, off-ball linebackers that can really go sideline to sideline and cover in space. Uh, that, to me, is the difference. I, I've had it described to me, Jordan, by people actually from the Southeast. I said, well, what's the big difference? You know, because uh, Dave Aranda pointed this out to me one time, you know, when he was at Wisconsin, he said, I could have a defense where, I could have two five techniques and then have some hybrid guys around them because the Midwest is where you can find, you know, six, five, like 275 pound dudes that are, you know, that, that can hold the point of attack and got a little athleticism to them. So, where, you know, Iowa, Nebraska, Michigan typically have found their offensive linemen is from the Midwest. Uh, I've asked people from the Southeast, hey, what, what's unique about Texas? And what, the, what, what I've been told multiple times is they're like, you know, the amount of, uh, Caucasian athletes in Texas that can really move, that can really play, is unlike anywhere else in the country. Like Texas has the market cornered on those type guys. So I don't know. Everybody, it, it kind of shifts. You know, there 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 are shifts as as people move, as demographics change. Uh, you see some kind of shift. You know, California, Jordan back. You you weren't on this planet yet. I don't think California one time was kind of the cradle of quarterbacks. Now when you think about elite quarterbacks, you've been thinking about the state of Texas. And maybe now we're getting to the point where, you know, between Deshaun Watson, Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, maybe now we're thinking more Southeast. You got, you know, uh, Caleb Williams from the D.C. area. So now maybe maybe that quarterback, that quarterback love is just getting spread out all over the country now. Yeah. And the the way Under Armour and to answer your question, Sam, we're talking about high school recruits. Uh, It was just a uh, Under Armour has these uh, about a dozen camps each year where. Um, if you're a top-rated player in the country, you get invited. If you have a certain, pretty much a certain amount of offers, you're going to get invited. And it's only the top players of the region there. There's only about maybe 100 to 150 kids. Uh, we get verified height, weight, every single measurement. And there's also uh, laser testing that's done, like 5105 shuttle, you know, 40-yard, all, all that good stuff. So, uh, And then they also do uh, drills, individual drills. They do one-on-one. Uh, if I remember correctly, maybe a little bit of seven-on-seven group stuff. Um, but it's separated by three groups, O-line, D-line, running back, linebacker, and then uh, quarterback slash receivers and DBs. Um, but the, the thing that stood out the most to me was just the O-line and D-line group. Just like seeing the amount of like 6'3", 200-plus pound kids there. Yeah. With like just like hands that look like they go down to their knees. And you, you can put like your arms look like they hang down to their knees. I meant, and you can put like 70 pounds of muscle on their frames. Like it's just in Texas, those there's a you ready? Showtime on May 3rd. Summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Maybe one or two of those kids mm-hmm. in that region. There was like 12 that were there. 
Um, it, it's just mind blowing. Um, and I, I'm a nerd. I'm a you know football nerd or whatever. So that's why I was so mind blowing to me is because again we don't get these types of athletes in Texas. Um, and it, I thought it was hilarious what you said about Texas having more like recruitable white kids than anywhere else because hey. it probably is true. And I think you can attribute all of that to just the setup of Texas high school football. I mean, look at look at Lake Travis, right? You take away maybe three or four kids, and this is Westlake too. It's a bunch of average white kids, like average athletic white kids. That's it. But they win because it's scheme and stuff like that. Because um, Texas high school football is, you know, it's like nothing else in any other state. Yeah, there's a certain culture here, and there's a certain pride about it here. And kids grow up in the communities at the age of four dreaming of being a, a Lake Travis Cavalier or a Westlake Chaparral or whatnot. Um, and I think – I, I just think um, the systems that are in place at some of these schools – and with how organized everything is in the state, um, just from high school football, but also uh, spring, you know, exposure events like Under Armour camps, National mm -hmm. Combine, seven on seven, all that spring ball. Um, they have a lot of more. They have a lot more exposure opportunities than kids get in other states. So that also helps them as well. But yeah, I was trying to see um, NFL starting quarterbacks this season how many were from texas um at the end of the regular season jared stidham is from texas patrick mahomes he counts because russell wilson was hurt uh kyler murray is three matthew stafford is four Derek carr i don't think finished his high school career in Texas, but I know he spent most of his high school years in Texas at Fort Ben Clements. He doesn't count. Really? Jalen, Hurt, Jalen Hurts is a Texas kid. Baker. I think that's like five or six. Derek Carr was at Fort Ben Clements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when his brother played for the Texans, uh, the family moved to Greater Houston. Yuck. I don't know. All the all the all the Fort had, Bend ISD schools are yuck to me, except for I didn't know one. you had anything like, against Fort Bend ISD. I have nothing against Fort Bend ISD itself. I'm against their. I don't enjoy really <laughs> paying attention to the football programs at any of the schools besides Fort Bend Marshall. Um, but there's already a system in place in Fort Bend ISD to where all the best players are gonna they're gonna be at that school, so I won't have to see the other schools. Yeah. So uh, there's been Fort Bend ISD. Or no, I, you know, you know there's what I been mean. Times, yeah, there's been times where uh, it seems like Ridge Point now. Uh, yeah, and Marshall, for sure. There was a time. There was a time where Hightower was producing a lot of Division One caliber kids. Uh, I don't know if you can say Elkins did per se, but I know Bruce Matthews sent all his kids there. So Jake Matthews and all his brothers went to went to Elkins. Uh, Elkins. Every now and then, Elkins has had a, a skill guy or two come out. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's it's just like DISD, you know. There's you'll yeah. see one one DISD school that'll be a power in football. One will be a power in basketball. Baseball's kind of off the radar, but I like I like Hightower. Um, I have a buddy whose brother-in-law is on the staff, um, and then I have a uh, or, or no, I also like um, uh, Ridge Point because I had to go see like three of their games because they had a Baylor commit there. Mm -hmm. So I saw a lot of Ridge Point over the last few years, but I never think of them as being Fort Bend ISD. Just because, like, the school's in Sugar Land. Yeah. You know, and, like, it's not 
I don't know. Like I always, I just forget it's Fort Bend ISD. Uh, Are most of Fort Bend ISD schools in Missouri City? Yeah, most of them. Uh, Fort Bend Marshall is definitely most city, but um, you know, Rich Point, I definitely say true, m- more truly Sugarland. At least that's that's how I felt. Yeah, Ad Mitchell made sure to let everybody know this season is one season in Texas that it's most city. You say Missouri City, it's most city. Uh, but anyway, so did you get to watch? Uh, how much of KJ Lacey did you see over the weekend? Yeah, so um, KJ went two of eight on his throws, but there was three drops. The other three were like, it, it, it's hard at these camps to judge the quarterbacks because they've never thrown with all these kids, and like it's yeah. it, like the chemistry timing is hard. But um, I really liked how he performed. Like I'm not holding two and eight against him. They, he already had an invite and was committed to the game, so he didn't even have to be there anyways, you know. So, like, he, you could tell him and other kids that had already committed to play in Under Armour's All-American game but were forced to be there. Like, you could tell which ones they were without knowing <laughs> which ones. Um, but uh, KJ, you know, he wasn't bad um, at all. Uh, the number one QB on the day was Julian Lewis, who, you know, Pretty much everyone knows who Julian Lewis is. Mm-hmm. And uh, with KJ Lacey, um, listen, he's saying all the right things about his commitment to Texas, but like, I, it's this, there's a long way to go on this one. Um, you know, in uh, the quotes he gave me, I think he even said in my quotes, I'm locked into Texas. I saw other people put out the same ones, you know, probably 10 people interviewed him that day. Uh, and they said whenever the camp first started, it was the most media members they've ever had at a at an Under Armour camp ever. There's 70 plus of us. Jeez. So KJ got like bombarded by a bunch of different people. I was the only person from the Texas market that was there. Um, so I have more Texas specific questions than anything else. But look, he's saying he's locked into his Texas commitment again. He's saying all the right things. But while I don't see a, commi- a decommitment happening anytime soon, this one is far, far from over. And I mean, he from the day Hank and I um, interviewed him right after he had committed to Texas, we had asked him then, are you planning on taking visits to other schools? And he told us yes, but that he was going to let Texas know on each of them. I asked him that question again, and he said the same thing. Um, for official visits, I'm like, you know, I assume you're going to be by Texas. What about the others? Still figuring that out. So there's a lot in limbo um, the next few months. I, it's really just you got to get him back to campus. He'll be there uh, April 20th for the spring game. Um, and then he also said he'll be back in Austin one more time in April, but before the spring game. Yeah. Because uh, he's a seven on seven tournament going on in the area. Um, so getting him back both times will be crucial. You know, just hope those those trips fall through and he makes it to campus because, you know, he's a state of Alabama kid and Auburn is pushing harder than anyone else right now. And yeah, Oregon, believe it or not, is also starting to uh, to come on. Will Stein just loves stealing the, the quarterbacks from the schools I covered. So it's yeah, he did that with Austin Novosad and uh, trying to do with KJ Lacey. You know, what's interesting, uh, just think about the KJ Lacey recruitment, the the presence of Arch Manning. We talked about this in relation to Trey Owens, but it it applies to maybe this is the last cycle you do with it because it seems like Texas has some traction, whether it's Will Griffin or some of these other guys. It seems like they've got a little more traction with some top end quarterbacks in that 26 class. But the 2025 cycle might be the last time you're dealing with it because what every school in the country is going to tell KJ Lacey if they want a negative recruit against Texas is, dude, do you really want to go there and sit behind Arch Manning for three years? 
Now, we know Arch might not be there three years or whatever, but that's what they're going to tell him. Yeah. And that I haven't seen this, Jordan. I haven't seen this really. You got to go back to when Vince Young was at Texas. Texas, for a couple cycles, had a really hard time recruiting quarterbacks. Like they tried to get names you won't that aren't going to ring a bell for you. But I mean, they went after na- like some nationally elite quarterbacks, whether it was yeah, Xavier Lee or Kyle Wright or Chris Leak. Uh, I don't remember if they recruited Kirby Freeman or not, but they tried to go after some some heavy hitters with quarterbacks, and all of them said the same thing: like I'm not going to go to I'm not going to go there and sit behind. Like I like Texas, but I ain't going to go sit behind Vince Young for three years. Like why? When he he's he was the best player in the country. Like I'm not going to go there and sit behind him. I can go over here to a school just as good or whatever and start. I, this is the first time. So this these are first world problems Texas is dealing with at quarterback is what I'm saying. It's been a minute since you've had that. And uh, you know, man, you think about some of the some of the quarterbacks that Texas missed on. Uh, and and, it, and the same thing kind of happened with Colt McCoy. You know, when Colt came on the scene as a freshman, I mean. Whether it was you know, Matt Stafford or Mark Sanchez, I mean, Texas missed out on some other quarterbacks that were nationally elite guys that they're like, dude, I don't want to go sit on the bench. You got Cole McCoy; he's going to be the starter there for four years. So it's good. It's a good problem to have, is what I'm saying. If you're if you're Sark right now, you could be in a much worse situation where you you're, you're recruiting a quarterback saying, please, we got to have somebody to come in here and be the guy. Well, you've already got the guy right now, Quinn Ewers. Hopefully, you have the next one in Arch Manning, and then you can just kind of keep this quarterback train rolling along. Yeah, I think. Um, look, obviously, every uh, all the Texas fans are happy Quinn Ewers is coming back. Um, and I, I saw some, I saw some people be like, "This just completely screws up the calendar for the quarterback position at Texas," you know, because they were like. Quinn is supposed to leave, then Archer is supposed to start as a sophomore and a junior and all that. And it's like, well, one, it's not like there is a certain required blueprint you have to follow. <laughs> like, it's not like Texas is like, oh, we're, uh, Texas is losing eight games next year because they didn't follow the quarterback blueprint. Like, that's yeah. not happening. So, look, I've been told by various people I trust and have for a long time that the Mannings would like if Arch plays for four years. At Texas, or is at Texas for four years. So, um, if schools are, are going to use that for for KJ Lacey or or to, to anti recruit, you know, it, it very well very well might end up being true. Um, the family likes Austin. Uh, you know, the the real the the Texas fans that I hope are reading our stuff um, are ones that know he was never going to enter the portal. Um, yeah, at least this this cycle. <laughs> uh, you know, you always want to be careful, but. Uh, we don't see him entering or leaving uh, Texas anytime soon. And, you know, that's going to be something Texas is going to have to battle against with anti-recruiting. And at the same time, I've had this conversation with a lot of people. Texas really can't afford to lose KJ Lacey's commitment. Um, There's a lot of obvious reasons why, but the main reason is because in 2025, like pretty much every quarterback domino has fallen, right? Yeah. And the the in-state class in Texas, it's the best receiver class I've ever seen come out of the state of Texas. Keep in mind, I started really following recruiting the 2022 cycle. But the 2025 cycle of quarterbacks in Texas is god-awful. It's not good. Um, there, in, in my opinion, there isn't a guy that I could see playing in Texas currently as a Texas talent. Um, so that said, 
they lose Lacey's commitment, they're going to have to go out of state most likely. And, you know, with pretty much every quarterback domino that's fallen, they're probably going to have to flip someone. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's way harder than it is to even get a commitment in the first place. And, you know, we all know, you know, it's kind of like the NFL. QBs are going to be the highest paid position NIL-wise unless you have like a, I don't know, um, try to think of like a, a Marvin Harrison Jr. on your team, right? Quarterbacks are always going to be the highest paid player in college. So, didn't Mac offer Colt and Sanchez at the same time? Uh, CB, I don't remember. I, I, I know Texas recruited Mark Sanchez as hard as anybody did. So, uh, and Ryan Perley was in that same class. I said, was Sanchez too? Was Sanchez 05? Yeah, Sanchez was 05. Ryan Perley was in that same class. And <clears throat> dude, Mark Sanchez was from Mission Viejo. Like, he, he was going to USC, you know, at the end of the day. And I think he's even said that, like he thought about Texas and then he ended up at USC. Actually, it was Sark recruited him to USC. And the USC only got one year out of him because uh, just the way it worked, he all started for one year and then went to the NFL and was a top, was it top five, top six pick of the draft. Anyway, enough about Mark Sanchez. Um, anybody, well, I was going to ask you about any of the prospects in Atlanta, but on the KJ Lacey thing, uh, you know, I said, hopefully the 25 cycles, the last time you're going to deal with that. Cause I just have a hard time, Jordan, thinking three cycles in a row, then it's going to be that hard for Sark to land a quarterback. Like it's going to open up a 26. And like you said, you can go to, to Horns 24 seven right now. And, you know, we got a, uh, Hank's got an updated story on Will Griffin from, from Tampa. Like there's enough 2026 quarterbacks that are interested in Texas that you feel like in that cycle, they're going to land a big fish, whoever it is. Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of, look, if you're going to go out and, and be a school who can land a top quarterback recruit and is in a, a top quarterback recruit that's a top five or top ten player nationally, you can only do it like once every three years. Like that, that's just, you can't do it more than that. Because one, you probably won't have the money. But yeah. two, um, you just, no kids want to sit behind a guy that's rated just as high, if not higher. You yeah. Know? Like, at the end of the day, a lot of these players think they're the best player to ever play uh, in high school. But, you know, when it comes time to talk in college, a lot of them are – there are running backs – there are running back recruits that are – don't want to come to Texas because they're scared they won't play because of depth. And these are good prospects. Um, yeah. And one of them might have came off the board last night. So, you know, Texas continuing to go forward, they're going to like having <laughs> you have to stack elite players to be an elite program. Yeah. Right. And it, eventually the program is going to recruit itself. You know, in at, at the end of the day, if you are a team that wants to win a national championship and you have 25 stars, you can't be recruiting a four star kid who's scared to come to your school because he doesn't think he'll be able to play. Right. You know, so. Alabama figured it out. Georgia figured it out. Um, you know, it seems like other schools are starting to figure it out. You got to copy the blueprint and execute it and make it work. Um, and one thing, I guess, to wrap up the Under Armour Atlanta talk, one thing that all of us found at 24-7 incredibly interesting and honestly kind of concerning, um, not a single kid really brought up Alabama that was there. At the, at the Under Armour? There was like, Atlanta, nobody there brought was up like, Alabama? There was like 
there's more buzz about Tennessee, Georgia, like South Carolina, the Florida schools, like any other school in the Southeast except Alabama was getting talked about. Wow. Um, they, they're really, really, really far behind. And uh, Mike Elko um, from Texas A&M even said after their signing day press conference, like, we are really far behind in 2025. Like, yeah. I think verbatim that was exactly what he said. Um, and it's because Jimbo and that staff screwed him. And because that AM is going out and they're landing some 2025 commitments because they're basically, okay, we're going to re-offer you and treat you and your crew right now like it's in July in the summer, yeah. you know. We're going to get your commitment right now in January or February um, to start adding guys because we're so far behind. We just need to start getting guys in the boat. Yeah. With Alabama, it's almost like they haven't even put their board together, kind of. Like, no kids were like, yeah, I can't wait to visit, or I've been talking to this guy and this guy. It was just like, oh, you know, they sent a text. And, yeah, I'm looking forward to con being in more contact with them, though. Like, that's everything that was said, pretty much. That's crazy. It's crazy. It's just it's just a different a different time, different different mindset. You got to approach it from because uh, you know in your in your lifetime, Bama's never been behind on anything. Yeah, and dude, that's that's what I was gonna ask you about. Like my whole life, Nick Saban in Alabama, I've been like, even when they're not the number one team in the country, it means more than anything else when you get that Bama offer, even though they're offering like a thousand kids so you yeah. can come camp. Yeah. I've never seen Alabama not thought of as, you know, a top three school to go play for ever, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, I look at Ole Miss. I don't view them as a true blue blood. I think they have a good program right now. Mississippi State, you know, solid SEC school, not a blue I, blood. I would put Ole Miss higher in a pecking order than Mississippi oh, State. For, for sure, for sure. I put Kentucky about Mississippi State, um, Missouri, I don't know, somewhere between like Ole Miss and the Mississippi State category. I would put I would put Ole Miss ahead of Kentucky. That's just my unabashed love for Dak Prescott. So, but ultimately, I have never seen an Alabama where they aren't <laughs> thought of yeah. as the program in the SEC. So, right. how is it like in the stretch? I know Bear Bryant, obviously, super old. Yeah, the stretch between then and Saban, where they thought of kind of like how Ole Miss is treated now by no. national college fans, or Hon you know, where honestly, were they? They were kind of like Texas has been for the last decade, except a better version. They're a better mm -hmm. version of where Texas has been the last decade. Uh, you know, you go through Ray Perkins and Bill Curry, the coaches that were right after Bear Bryant. And I think a lot of that was still the Alabama fans were trying to find the next Bear Bryant. Not not so much that at that point. It was they were still weren't over Bear Bryant not being their coach. Uh, and, you know, you get Gene Stallings, who obviously his ties to Bear Bryant. And, uh, you know, he, Gene Stallings ends up winning a national championship. But then Alabama gets on probation. And I, my, I, you got to remember when I'm coming up watching college football, Alabama wins a national championship in the 92 season, which is, I remember watching that Sugar Bowl. I remember George T. hawking Lamar Thomas down in the Sugar Bowl and ripping the ball out of his hand. Uh, but when I was growing up, your main SEC powers, it wasn't the schools in that West Division. And if there was one in that West Division, for me, it was more so Auburn than Alabama. Mm -hmm. But the power in the SEC was in the East, and it was Florida and Tennessee. I mean, pretty much whoever won that Tennessee-Florida game, they were probably winning the SEC that year. You can almost take that to the bank. But Bama was – how can I compare – who do I compare Bama to now? 
I would compare Alabama then to hmm. I'd have to think about that really hard because they 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 were always able to get good players. Uh, but then, you know, they won the SEC. What was that? Nineteen ninety. It had kit kind of a lull. They were on probation. They win the SEC in '99. And from that point on, you know, Mike DeBose got fired after the next season. And then with Mike Shula, they were just kind of a. I remember one year they had like a that 05 season. I think they were a 10 win team. They had a D'Amico Ryans was the captain of their defense and Brody Crow was the quarterback. So they were kind of like Texas has been, you know, every now and then they would win like nine or 10 games. And you think, all right, are they turning the corner? And then, nope, they're not. It was just kind of a flash in the pan type deal until Saban got there. Then it was, they just kind of took off. Yeah. Um, it was just kind of a lot of a lot of stops and starts. I'm interested to see how much this rivalry is going to swing towards Auburn. Because um, we know Saban, you know, it, he – it's not like he was just destroying Auburn because, like, I, I think he has, what, five or six maybe career losses or some. But I believe he is over 500 versus Auburn. Um, but obviously, imagine, imagine what kind of coaching record Gus Malzahn would have if he just coached against Nick Saban every week. Oh yeah, no, true. He, Gus Malzahn would probably still be an eight and five coach, but that'd be a hell of an eight wins. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I was saying, though, I, I vividly remember from Bo Jackson's thirty for thirty. Uh, he was talking about his recruitment and how Bear Bryant was like, Auburn hasn't beat us in eleven years, and they'll never beat us again. Yeah. Um, and he kind of, I think he said, like, he thought it was cool to, that it would have been cool to go to Auburn and beat him for the first time in 11 years. And that's what he did. But yeah. I can't fathom, um, like, even Texas beating OU for 11 years in a row or vice versa or anyone doing that to anyone's rival, you know? Yeah. But do you think Auburn is going to take control of this? Because, look, that, that's a crazy game. Anything can happen in the Iron Bowl. Look at what happened with Milrow and Isaiah Bond last year. Yeah. Uh, or the kick six, all the different classic plays. But each year, pretty much, it's like Alabama's winning this game, but we know anything can happen. That will it, not be the case anymore. What, what, what you'll learn, Jordan, about rivalries, man, they're cyclical. You know, Florida-Georgia at one time when I was growing up, even like when I was in high school, pretty much the Steve Spurrier run at, Georgia, at Florida. I think Florida beat Georgia, it was like 11 or 13 years, Florida beat Georgia. I remember one year, like, Georgia won the game, and it was like, oh, my gosh, it was like the biggest upset ever that Georgia beat Florida. Um, you know, Tennessee and Florida had a run like that where Florida beat Tennessee like four or five years in a row. OU in the early 2000s, they had the the five in a row. Uh, Bama, Bama I think, had – I think they won like 12 or 13 or something like that versus oh, Tennessee, uh, Tennessee yeah. until Tennessee beat them last yeah. year. So these, you know, Michigan, Ohio State's one of those that's very cyclical. Uh, Ohio State had that long winning streak. Was it like seven, eight in a row or whatever? Yeah. Might have been longer than that. Now Michigan's won what three in a row. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's they tend to be cyclical. Like we we think of them more as you know, the good rivalries. We think of more of oh, they're the kind of these back and forth type deals. But you you tend to see more. You the great games are great because you remember them forever, but. Mm -hmm. Go look, whatever your rivalry choice is, Texas OU, the Iron Bowl, Michigan, Ohio State, you'll see more blowouts in those rivalries than you probably think because typically as things go cyclically, you know, typically when in the Texas OU series like 49 nothing two years ago, you see that when one team is a veteran team that's got experience and the other team doesn't have experience and they're just not ready 
for all that that game is. And they usually learn the hard way what that game's all about. Man. Yes, you mentioned that A&M was uh, one ten of 11 over Texas from, for 10 years. Wow. The only uh, ever Red River game I've attended in my life was uh, the 49-0 game. So that's why they lost this year because you didn't go back. Yeah, maybe I'm maybe I'm good luck. Um, I'm convinced. I'm convinced Texas lost to Washington, not because of anything to do with game plan or whatever. But when Texas beat Georgia in that Sugar Bowl, I'm almost positive it was because I had woken up. Sam cursed the university. We're back. It was that Sugar Bowl, that Sugar Bowl against Georgia. I woke up that morning and I went to Willie Mays Scotch House in New Orleans. Best fried chicken I've ever had. I had fried chicken for lunch. And I think that was a good luck lunch. Well, it turns out that the chicken place had burned down and they're not going to reopen for a while. And I didn't get to have fried chicken for lunch on New Year's Day. So that's why Texas lost. So I need to, I'm going to make it very clear to Sark that don't feel bad about game plan or anything or. You know, Quinn, don't feel bad about that pass. I didn't have fried chicken. That's why you guys lost. So, yeah, maybe you should have turned the lights out or, you know, cared, cared more to, to get him the dub something. Nah, Man, I, I tell you what, dude, sitting in that Superdome press box, that's one of those press boxes where you're likely to get vertigo, man, because it's like, it feels like you're just straight up, just like peering over the ledge at the field. It's, uh, it's up there at the top. Like the NRG one, that one is like in the clouds. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the the war that's worse than the Superdome and it's worse than NRG. Uh, the the press box at a Globe Life Field, the new one. Man, it ain't that bad. The press box is, dude. I'm telling you. Oh, have you been in the press box at the Gilf? You have, dude. Yeah. It is like it. It feels like you're like if you like drop a pin or something, and you reach for like you're gonna have a bad afternoon because. You just go oh, no, yeah, yeah. No, you're super high up there, but I, I yeah. like it. Like, it's, it's super nice. I love games. They're, everyone hates the high school games that are played there because it's a baseball diamond. But, like, I love it because the lighting is amazing in there, and I like the press box view because it's you're super high up. You, you are but, super high up, yeah. But, again, like, when you're actually watching baseball there, it does it, feel, it feels like I'm going to get vertigo when I'm in there. Like, it's just it's all – I'm going to get all disoriented. But – at any rate, um, hey, let's talk about Sark's contract extension because the terms are out. That's actually going to be approved uh, in the next couple of days there in the Board of Regents meetings. I don't know what you thought about it. I didn't think too much of the dollar amount. You know, technically, he's the third highest paid coach in the country right now between Dabo Swinney uh, after it's Dabo Swinney, Ryan Day, and then Sark. Um, look, I said the same thing about college coaches' contracts that I say about NFL quarterback contracts. Don't ask yourself the question, is this guy worth that much money? This is what the market says. If you have a coach you feel is capable of winning you a national championship, just like if you feel you have a quarterback that's capable of winning you a Super Bowl, this is what the market says those guys need to make. This is what you need to pay them to make sure you hang on to them. So I don't have a problem with it at all. My tone on the head coach's salary has changed a lot because you know what? If if it doesn't work out for Sart in the next two to three years and Texas has to buy him out, and again, I'm not hoping that happens by any stretch, but if that happens, <clears throat> it's not like Chris Del Conte is going to have to pass around the collection plate like somebody at church to find out how to pay for it. Like, We're going to need 80 M's. <laughs> We're going to need 80 M's to pay this guy not to coach. Yeah. <laughs> like Jimbo. The people, the people that are 
willing to put up the money to help get Sark paid are the same people that are going to be willing to write the check if it doesn't work out. Likewise, you know, Sark is not, you know, this contract's going to run through 2030. Sark's not going to see this extension all the way through because one or two things is going to happen. One, either it doesn't work out and he's not the coach of Texas, or two, what you hope happens is he outperforms this contract and two, three years from now gets another new one where you rip this one up and do another extension. So I don't know. I, it was great for him. I, I think the fact that the bigger thing for me was looking at it with Jeff Banks and PK and Kyle Flood and uh, who else got an extension? Uh, it was PK Banks, Flood, and who else got an extension? I, I can't remember. One of the other assistants got an extension. Uh, or maybe that was just it was just those three. Anyway, it just drives home the point even more about how Sark knocked it out of the park with his initial staff. Yeah, he did. And I remember um, this is something my dad and I talked about a lot, right? When the, the Sark staff first came together, it's like, you know, my dad and I felt a lot better about the trajectory of Texas. Um, in the first week of Sark, and then the first week of Herman, and then the first week of Charlie Strong. Mm-hmm. And it was because he hired a initial staff that was a thousand times better than Herman or Charlie Strong ever did. Yeah. He also um, is, you know, one of the best coaches at uh, his preferred side of the ball, uh, Sarkeesian is. Um, he calls plays. He's an OC. And, you know, it's not like like Charlie Strong was thought to be a defensive base, but he was never, ever, not once thought of in the same respect level that Sarkeesian gets in, you know, coaching circles for his offensive game plan, stuff like that, right? Charlie Strong was never getting that. Tom Herman never got that at Houston either. So we're always like, my dad and I were like, this is the best staff out of the three, and it's the first week of the staff being here. Um, And I think that's what set him up for success. Also, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say I think NIL and Transfer Portal has also helped a lot um, in terms of speeding everything up. And that's not just for Texas, that's for every school in the country. Um, but that, that has also helped, you know, Sarkeesian and, and the rest of the staff as well is, is NIL in the transfer portal, you know? Um, yeah. Because if, if that's not a thing, is Quinn Ewers at Texas? No, <laughs> probably, probably not. If the, if the transfer portal doesn't exist, he still probably could have transferred. But it, it, we're looking at a lot different Texas team right now with NIL and the portal doesn't exist, obviously. But man, it, it's he deserves the money. Um, uh, he deserves the raise. He deserves the extension. And another thing that uh, my dad has always pointed out whenever uh, Texas had hired Sark, they weren't paying him top ten money right away. I don't even know if he was getting top fifteen money right away. Do you remember Jeff? No, it was. I mean, I think on his salary, which hadn't changed, he was going to be in the bottom half of SEC coaches in terms of salary. Yeah, it was, it was, it was peanuts. You know, it was basically, it was basically a prove, a prove it deal. No, that's what it was. And yeah. Texas couldn't really have given that to any of their coaches because you know I think a big part of it was not that Texas was who extended the olive branch to Sark to help revive his career because it was Nick Saban, but Texas was the first major you know big time program at least that I know of that went after Sark. Yeah. So you know they could come with a lower number for him than they probably could if they were to have gone after. I don't know, name any other head coach, right? So 
Sark hired a new recruiting coordinator, a new director of player personnel and offense. Yep, um, I saw that. Uh, recruiting coordinator is an interesting position because it like I feel like it went extinct for like five or ten years, and I've <laughs> seen more more schools staff. have started to bring it back. It used to be somebody on staff that was the recruiting coordinator because it used to be a way to just give one of your assistant coaches a title just to get them some more money. But like, but what now, is a recruiting? I couldn't even tell you what a recruiting coordinator does because I don't think Texas has had one. Man, I remember under Herman, uh, Jason Washington was the recruiting coordinator. I don't, I don't know if Wash could tell you he did anything different on a day-to-day basis uh, other than what he did previously before he got the recruiting coordinator title. Yeah. Well, the good thing is the recruiting coordinator is. Some random dude I didn't really know existed. So, and not a position coach. So, yeah. Hopefully, they'll be getting some value out of whoever has the title. Yeah, I, I think I think people need to start looking at some of these staff positions, especially in the recruiting department. As, oh, you got a new recruiting coordinator. You got a director of player personnel in office. Those are jobs where, like, Brandon Harris's job is a little bit different because general manager is one where you can pay him more and he can have a staff position where he can stick around for a minute. The other jobs are you don't really want somebody there all that long. You know, it's, it's people that are looking to move up and they're looking for either on a personnel staff, higher level positions down the road. Like they want to go be a GM somewhere or a director of player personnel. Um, or, you know, maybe that that's their foot in the door to get a, a coach, an on-field coaching gig, whatever the case is. But those positions are made to – to change and, and have some churn every now and then. I think the the guy that's been there the longest, uh, and I say guy, I know there's there's ladies that work in the department too. Uh, man, I, I think J.M. Jones was there. Uh, J.M. Jones was there during Herman, the Herman years. I don't remember if he, I don't remember if J.M. Jones was there during Charlie or not. But, you know, J.M. Jones has been there for a minute, and, and that's a good promotion for him because he's been there. He's paid his dues. Uh, and you needed to keep Brandon Harris and Taylor Searles and Kendall Perry. They do a heck of a job. But again, the positions below them, those should be the the high churn positions. Oh yeah, and I mean it's <laughs> soon there is going to be like, I mean I don't I don't know what the number is for how much an FBS school can have of um, non on field staffers. You know what I mean that are full time. I don't know what the cap looks like for that, but. Like the director of high school relations job was created by Mac Brown. Yeah. So they could have another guy on their recruiting staff. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what it, that's what it is. Is that gone on? That turned into like player personnel, obviously. Their job is very important and the scouting jobs are very important. But there are so many BS titles in the recruiting department where it's like you you are a assistant recruiter, but whatever your title is, I'm not sure, you know how much it corresponds. And that's not Texas. That's every school in America. Yeah. Like LSU is the king. LSU has like a dozen dudes on their staff who I genuinely have no idea what they do except tweet. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, I don't know what y'all do except tweet. Cause so, they can't, they can't go visit kids in like, it, it's just, I, I, there has to be a cap established somewhere. Yeah. So I want to run this down real quick. If I could, Jordan, if you give me just a second. You're good. Um, Let me see if I can find. There's one guy I'm specifically talking about from LSU. Let me see if I can find. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get the initial staff stuff. Um, 
Okay, completed staff. Actually, this would be easier if I did this. Um, this is live, live. We're live, folks, and I didn't plan on doing this, so I apologize. All right, so I talked about Sark's initial staff, right? So he retained, retained Stan Drayton and Andre Coleman. Drayton got a head coaching job. He got rid of Coleman after the first year. AJ Milwee, Jeff Banks, Kyle Flood all came from came with him from Alabama. They're all still there. Bo Davis just left. Pequikowski's still there. Jeff Choate just left to take a head coaching job. Blake Gideon and Terry Joseph are still there. So the bulk of and, and the guys that uh that Sark replaced, he replaced Stan Drayton with Tashard Choice, who's still there. He's had he's had some churn at wide receivers coach, but Chris Jackson is looks like he's in. Jordan, we talked about this before. I mean, you've talked to wide receiver recruits that have had good things to say about Chris Jackson. So Chris Jackson taking over for Brennan Marion, that's been a good hire. So we'll see in the end how Kenny Baker works out. Uh, we'll see how Johnny Nansen works out. But so far, so good. Only early returns for both those guys. So Sark knocked out of the park with his initial staff. Here's Mac Brown's initial staff. His coordinators were Greg Davis, who was with him until he got fired in 2010. Carl, Carl Bull Reese, who retired after the 03 season. Uh, Bruce Chambers was with Mac his entire tenure and was with Charlie Strong year one. Mike Tollison was with Mac until he retired after 2010. Hardy McCrary was the defensive ends coach until 03. And he was the uh, high school relations director, got hired back there in February 2016. So Hardy McCrary was gone after 03. Daryl Drake was also gone after 03. He took a job with the Chicago Bears. Tim Nunez was let go after the 02 season as the offensive line coach. Uh, and then you had Tim Brewster was the tight ends coach who left in 2001. So Mac's initial staff was really good. You, you heard a couple of different, hey, Tim Brewster was a college head coach. Everett Withers was a college head coach. Like you had some, some good coaches on that staff. Um, go to Charlie Strong's initial staff. You ready? Yeah, let's hear it. Vance Bedford, who got demoted uh, in 2016 and was let go with, got fired with the rest of the staff. Chris Rumpf was there for one year and then I think took an NFL job, I think. Brian Jean-Marie, actually Brian Jean-Marie was a good hire. He was with Charlotte Louisville, was with Charlotte again. I think Sharon Moore was trying to hire him at Michigan. He's at Tennessee uh, and I think there's a bidding war now between Tennessee and Michigan for uh, for Brian John Marie, Chris Vaughn, who did a good job until Texas got a hold of that old Miss file from the NCAA and felt like they had no choice but to move on from Chris Vaughn at that point. Uh, that was on defense. So Brian John Marie was by far the best of those hires. On offense, this is where, good lord. Bruce Chambers fired after year one. Les Koenig, as Bruce was the tight ends coach. Les Koenig, wide receivers coach, fired after year one. Tommy Robinson as the running backs coach left. I think he went to LSU after year two. Sean Watson was demoted as the assistant head coach for offense after the first game of the 15th season and then wasn't brought back. Joe Wickline was basically fired after year two. So by the time you got to year three, None of your initial staff was there on the offensive side of the ball. 
that's how bad that staff was, man. There's some good dudes on that list, like Bruce Chambers, Les Canning. They're good people, but it just didn't work out, man. And Tom hey, but, Herman's but, initial but, staff. But, Jeff, it's okay because Charlie Strong enforced the five pillars of uh, – or not the – damn, five, I messed it up. Five, five, five core values. Five core values. <laughs> Got your five, got your five yeah. core values. Can't can't believe I messed it up. Sorry. Go go to Herman. Uh, CB said that Michigan hired Brian Jean Marie. I didn't see that they did, but if they did, then that's a good hire. So Brian Jean Marie, uh, that was a good hire by Charlie. And let's see. Yeah, I can't. Uh, whatever. Maybe they did. They did. I don't have time to get into that. All right. Tom Herman's initial staff. Uh, Tim Beck lasted three seasons. It was basically let go. Stan Drayton was there the entire time. Oscar Giles was there the entire time. Corby Meekin started as tight ends coach, transitioned to inside receivers coach, and then was demoted after the 19th season and left. Drew Maringer, I think, was fired after the 19th season. Craig Niver was let go after the 19 season. Todd Orlando was fired before the end of the 2019 season. Derek Wareheim was the offensive line coach and then got removed from that position, got moved to tight ends coach after year one, and you brought in Herb Hand. And then Jason Washington was gone after the 19 season. So by the time you got to year four for Tom Herman, which is the year Sark is going into right now, you had a grand total of two guys from your initial staff, Oscar Giles and Stan Drayton, all that was left. So again, and I don't I don't think the Herman staff was was that bad. I just Oh come think, on. No, 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 no. Were, I don't think I don't uh, some think, of them weren't bad. There are some good apples, I feel like. But I don't Herman think, I don't think there were bad coaches. I just think there were some moves Tom should have made after year one yes. that he didn't. And I think I, – I, I say it all the time, man. I think winning that Sugar Bowl against Georgia was the worst thing that happened to Tom Herman. <laughs> Honestly, because he's Texas, like, oh, man, yeah. my plan works. I, I think there were some coaches on that staff that would have been gone after, after that 2018 season. Had they not beaten Georgia and finished 9-5 and five instead of 10-4, and four, but Tom's Tom's initial staff was better than Charlie's initial staff. But as we bring on Trey, that's not saying a whole lot. It, it isn't. It isn't. I can't believe. It, I think it was lost in, in the shuffle of comments here. But that Dan Quinn hired Andre Coleman to coach in the NFL. Well, he doesn't have to recruit. <laughs> no, but he, he's going to have to coach. <laughs> I don't think Andre was a bad coach. <clears throat> I just think everything I heard about Andre Coleman from a recruiting standpoint was it was always what, what the word that was getting back to me was that if Andre Coleman didn't succeed recruiting a kid, it was always somebody else's fault. It was it was Herman's fault. He didn't get some guys in 2020 or it was it was Sark's fault or it was AJ Milwee's fault or it was somebody else. It was never it was never Andre Coleman's fault. That's the word that got back to me. It's fun. I know y'all about to start, but uh, if you ever want to find about the AM version of Andre Coleman, just look up Damian Craig because he's, <laughs> he's, they, 
as much as Texas fans like Andre Coleman, AM might uh, like Damian Craig even more. So, Trey, BK, can you believe that? I, I just ran down because we're talking about, you know, with Bank, Jeff Banks and PK and uh, Kyle Flood getting extensions, it's further proof that Sark hit a home run with his initial staff. Charlie Strong's initial staff, by the time he got to year three, none of his hires from his initial staff on offense were still on staff. They were all, they'd all been fired. Mm. Yeah. None of the guys who were hired on defense should have been there either. But. I take it back. Tommy Robinson did, did leave to take a job at LSU. Everybody else was fired. Uh, yeah. Continuity on a coaching staff is very nice. It is something that we have not had nearly enough of around these parts. So uh, yeah, the fact that it's, Year four of the Stark era and all three coordinators mm-hmm. remain in place from year one. That's rare for here, and it feels kind of rare for anywhere, too. So yeah. Take- and you got, yeah. I mean, Terry, Terry Joseph, Blake Gideon, they were on the initial staff. Stan Drayton was on the initial staff, but you replaced him with the Shard Choice, which Stan Drayton was a really good recruiter, really good position coach, but damn, you might have upgraded considering the job to Shard Choice. And I'm not shortchanging Stan. I realize that guy got Bijan helped get Bijan Robinson to Texas. So you got to give Stan Drayton his props. But Shard Joyce has been damn good. And you've had some churn of wide receivers coach, but Chris Jackson's been a good hire. So I got that's what gives me confidence more than anything. But it's not blind faith. But you know, if Sark did the same due diligence on Kenny Baker that he did on uh Chris Jackson, then I'm I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and see if this works out. Yeah, I think he's earned that, right? Yeah. I think most Texas fans kind of feel the same way. I mean, I don't, I don't know if anyone expects this dude to be Bo Davis in terms of development. I don't know how many <laughs> D-line coaches at this level are like that, but uh, I expect good things from Kenny Baker, and I feel like he could be an upgrade on the recruiting trail too. So, Trey, are, are you with me on the – we were talking about Sark's contract, and uh, – I said, look, you gotta. You, if you're asking yourself if he's quote unquote worth it or not, you're asking yourself the wrong question. If you've got a coach that you feel can win you a national championship, the market dictates that this is what you have to pay him. Doesn't matter if whether he's worth it or not. This is this is what the market says. You got to pay a national championship caliber coach. It is going to be an unpopular opinion among Longhorn fans, but I think the deal is a little bit too long, but. Ultimately, what the fuck do I care? It's not my money. It's kind of where I, I'm glad you said that because that's kind of where I've gotten. Like, well, it's going to cost like, hey, Crystal Conte's not passing the hat to me asking me to chip in when if he's got to buy out a coach. No. Yeah. yeah it's, it, he could send it my way, but it will go right back to him with nothing. Yeah. So, BK, by the way, I'm pretty sure Mike is unplugged. My mic is unplugged? Yes. Yeah, so I, I was. Thank you, Jordan. I was going to say something no once, uh, once you guys no uh, said goodbye. But yeah, it sounds like your microphone is, you're either talking to your computer or the micro, the microphone that's in front of your face isn't working. But you, can you don't hear have me. the right settings. We uh, can. Hmm. How about now? Perfect. Perfect. Much better. Oh, yeah. Ah. Probably did a whole show this morning like that. That, that must have been fun <laughs> to listen to. Oh, it wasn't it, that bad. It's, it's the day like off yesterday. Less. Yeah, we yeah, do appreciate the day off, boss man. Appreciate you guys appreciating the day off. All right. We'll be back to do it tomorrow. Trey BK, you guys have a good show. Good stuff, fellas. Thank Indeed. you.